Second Samuel chapter number 18. I'm glad he found that stop button. I, I, I don't know that song. I, I would have just had to stood here and looked at you instrumentally. Amen. Second Samuel chapter number 18. And, uh, I want, if, if the Lord will allow us to, to continue on a little bit in this series that we've been preaching on about donkeys and the Word of God. Second Samuel chapter number 18. And, uh, I will go ahead and admit to you tonight that really what we're preaching on is not a donkey, but a mule. Amen. Uh, but most of y'all wouldn't know the difference if you saw one. So, uh, it, it really don't matter. Uh, but it, it, I think there is some significance here, uh, in viewing them both as, as beasts of burden and, uh, they both seem to sort of function in the same way. They're not, to most people, they're not attractive animals. Now, I suppose if you're the type of person that deals in them, trades in them, uh, or, or just somebody that has an affinity or affection for them, you might see them as, as, uh, as, as stately or beautiful or, or whatever it might be. But for most people, they are not attractive animals. Uh, they are certainly not bought and kept for the attractive nature that they are. And uh, again, unless you have sort of a, a prior uh, or, or nostalgic connection to them, or of course living here in the southeast, uh, it, it sort of goes with the mythos and ethos of, of the southeast, people farming and stuff. But for the most part, we don't step back and look at a beautiful picture of a mule. Amen. It's just not a beautiful creature. Uh, same thing is true about a donkey. But we find that many of the characteristics of a donkey are present in the disposition of a mule as well. In fact, that's the reason that mules were were bred, was to be a stronger, bigger, more powerful uh, sort of iteration of the qualities of a donkey. Uh, and that's why they were married together, the horse and the donkey, and, and that's why mules are, are in existence. And so I think that we can say there's some similarity betwixt these two animals, and I think we could maybe even say that many of the qualities and characteristics uh, about a donkey that we have studied and that we have taken note of, uh, those characteristics are the very reason that the, the hybrid that is a mule exists. Uh, is because those qualities were sought after. So I don't think we're doing damage either, either to the continuity of the, of the series or certainly uh, to the testimony of Scripture in considering many of the same thoughts. Second Samuel chapter number 18. And uh, let's go ahead and read our text tonight. We're going to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 15. And then I'll say a few words about where we've been preaching and what we want to say this evening. Word of God says, Second Samuel chapter 18, verse number 1, And David numbered the people that were with him, and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. David sent forth a third part of the people under the hand of Joab and a third part under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and a third part under the hand of Idiah, the Gittite. And the king said unto the people, I will surely go forth with you myself also. But the people answered, Thou shalt not go forth, for if we flee away, they will not care for us, neither if half of us die, they will they care for us. But now thou art worth ten thousand of us. Therefore now it is better that thou succor us out of the city. And the king said unto them, What seemeth you best, I will do. And the king stood by the gate side, and all the people came out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Idiah, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom. So the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was in the wood of Ephraim, where the people of Israel were slain before the servants of David. And there was there a great slaughter that day of twenty thousand men. 
For the battle was there scattered over the face of all the country, and the wood devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. And Absalom met the servants of David. And Absalom rode upon a mule. And the mule went under the thick bows, boughs of a great oak, and his head caught hold of the oak. And he was taken up between the heaven and the earth, and the mule that was under him went away. And a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanged in an oak. And Joab said unto the man that told him, And behold, thou sawest him, and why didst not thou not smite him there to the ground? And I would have given thee ten shekels of silver in a girdle. And the man said unto Joab, Though I should receive a thousand shekels of silver in mine hand, yet would I not put forth mine hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king charged thee and Abishai and Idai, saying, Beware that none touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise I should have wrought falsehood against mine own life, for there is no matter hid from the king, and thou thyself wouldest have set thyself against me. Then said Joab, I may not tarry thus with thee. And he took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men that bear Joab's armor compassed about and smote Absalom and slew him. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity. What a privilege it is to be in your house tonight. I pray that you'd stir hearts. I pray that you'd wield your word effectively, impactfully in our lives. Lord, we know the word of God is able. We know it's it's powerful. Help us, Lord, to have our hearts and ears and minds open to it, that you might do an eternal work, and we'll be sure to thank you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So in the Word of God, donkeys and mules are found a a number of times. Now, they're sort of mentioned in passing quite a bit, because a donkey was the most common uh, animal in the Middle East in that time. We often think about camels and, and identify camels with the Middle East. And of course, camels were uh, very often used, especially for long journeys, uh, long sojourns, long traveling. Uh, but the average every day, the Toyota Tercel of the Middle East was the donkey. It, it was the vehicle that, that everybody used. It was the vehicle that was just dependable and consistent. And it was day in and it was day out. Pretty much every home, unless they were very, very poor, would have probably owned a donkey. And we considered some of the reasons for that. We jotted a few of them down, and we made application as to how that reminds us of the life of a believer. Uh, Because we find that just as a donkey was a beast of burden, just as a donkey was used by the Lord in His service, uh, that there are many similarities with how you and I are supposed to live and how we are to behave and how we are to sort of frame our mind as far as our calling and our purpose and our disposition in life. We have titled this series, Dare to be a Donkey. We've jokingly said, you know, it's the old saying, dare to be a Daniel. And I admire that, but I I know too much about Daniel's life to aspire to that. Amen. I I don't think I could be a Daniel, uh, but I think I could dare to be a donkey. Amen. I think I could probably do that. And uh, and I don't think that's a bad thing, because uh, when I think about a donkey, it reminds me of just exactly how we are as believers. Let me give you a few of these, uh, of these, uh, of these thoughts, just by way of introduction. I think about a donkey, the first thing I think about is the stubbornness of a donkey. If ever there was any quality that reminds me of most believers, most Baptists, most Christian people, it's that idea of stubbornness. Uh, we preached about last Sunday morning the stubbornness of Saul uh, and how Saul was disobedient in destroying the Amalekites. And uh, Samuel went out of his way to tell Saul that rebellions is the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as, uh, as sin and idolatry. 
that uh, stubbornness is our great impediment. There's no limitation to what God can do in our lives if we'll just let Him. But a great many of us struggle to let God work in our lives. In fact, I'd say that's probably for most of us the chief struggle of our lives is God trying to do something and us undermining it. A donkey, before it can ever be useful, that stubbornness has to be conquered. And actually, I would say this, that in some ways, that stubbornness not only has to be conquered, it has to be co-opted. Because very often, it is the stubbornness of a donkey that even makes it effective if that stubbornness can be wielded by its master in an appropriate way. Uh, It reminds me of the Apostle Paul. Man, when he was when he was employed by the devil, he was the devil's best agent. But on the road to Damascus, when he saw the light shine, when God uh, spoke to him, when his heart changed, he became the most effective agent of the Lord. And he became used of God in a great way. So I'd say this, we don't have to fight against our disposition. We just have to make sure our disposition is yielded unto the Lord. Uh, and a great many people that uh, that have been stubborn, stubborn as a mule, stubborn as a donkey, could be used by God if they would let God wield that stubbornness uh, and mold it into resoluteness and conviction and determination. So we talked about the stubbornness of a donkey. Then we talked about a ser- the service of a donkey. A donkey is meaningful because it serves. It, it is a beast of burden. It carries heavy loads. Uh, it grows. It walks great distances. It climbs great heights. It descends into great depths. It is created to serve. And again, apart from my, I get women like those those miniature fuzzy donkeys. Amen. I anytime if you and your wife are in the car and you drive by a field and there is a miniature fuzzy donkey, you're going to hear your wife go, "Oh!" Because they love those little donkeys. But but by and large, by and large, they're not attractive animals, uh, at least for most people, but they're not they don't have to be. Uh because they're servants. And can I say something to you? And I, I don't, I mean, we could joke about this and we could say it tongue in cheek, but I don't even mean as far as your external, uh, you know, beauty or appearance, but I mean as far as your, your, uh, sense of, of, of value and ability and capability. You don't have to be much if you'll just serve the Lord. And in fact, that's going to be a lot of what we talk about tonight. Uh, you don't have to be much if you'll just serve the Lord. God can do a lot with a little. But he can't do much of anything with nothing, at least not if he's going to include us. God has the ability to bring forth something out of nothing. But if he wants to incorporate us into his plan, then we have to be yielded to him. We don't have to be much, but we do have to be yielded unto him. So we talked about the service of a donkey. We talked about the strength of a donkey. A donkey has great strength. In fact, that's why it is useful. And in fact, when you look at the, the short hair and the, and the sleek, uh, shiny, shimmering coat uh, of your average horse, part of the beauty is owed to the fact that that thing is basically just a big four-legged muscle walking around. And, and it's a beautiful creature. But a donkey is oftentimes covered with that longer coat. And uh, it's got the shorter legs. And it just lo- it looks like me. Amen. It looks a little dumpier. And uh, they, they are not attractive creatures. But there is a great strength that is underlying It is not apparent from the external observation. But it's there if it's... Uh, if it can be wielded effectively. And that's like a Christian. That's like a believer. Uh, you have a lot more strength if it's the strength of the Lord. You have a lot more strength than you realize. You can bear far more than you think you can. And if you've ever been through some hard times in life, you know that to be true. Most people in this room with, with a year or two under their belt have been through things that they would have never thought they were strong enough to bear. And in fact, they weren't themselves, but the strength of the Lord was sufficient for them. So we talked about the strength of a donkey. We talked about the sure-footedness of a donkey. 
And that is a lot of the reason that mules were created really was to take advantage of that sure-footedness, that ability uh, to be able to, to climb and descend to great depths and, and that ability to keep its feet underneath it when other animals do not have that ability. It reminds me of what the book Proverbs says about a righteous man, that though he falls seven times, he'll not be utterly cast down. Uh, it's amazing, and it goes along with what we talked about a moment ago. It's amazing how the Lord can undergird you, can hold you up, can make your feet like hinds feet, can give you spiritual dexterity to somehow keep going even in the midst of great trial and even in the midst of a precarious situation. You know, we sometimes get into sticky situations in life, things that we don't know how to navigate, things that we don't know how to do. But if we let the Lord order our steps, there is no path so narrow or so winding but what God can direct us through it. We talked about the sure-footedness of a donkey. We talked about the stamina of a donkey. A donkey will go a lot farther than you'd think it would. Uh, and, and, and again, as believers, a lot of times we feel like, well, man, Lord, I'm at the end of my rope. I can't keep going on. I can't keep going on. But if we'll do what a donkey does, if we'll stick our head down, keep our eyes on the course ahead of us, and just keep lifting one foot in front of another, we'll be amazed how far, how far we can go. We'll be amazed how much the Lord will sustain us and uphold us. Then we talked about the substitute of a donkey. This is an interesting historical and scriptural fact that in ancient Israel, uh, that, that most animals uh, that were clean and most animals that had value, they had to bring the firstborn of whatever that flock or herd was. They had to bring that thing to God and give it to God. But did you know that a donkey, because God understood the value of a donkey, that it was valuable to a family, but not only that, that it had greater value in life than in death, there was a provision made that a donkey could be redeemed. In fact, listen to what it says in Exodus 13. It says, The firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break his neck, and all the firstborn of man among thy children shalt thou redeem. In Exodus 34, the same thing is reiterated. All that openeth the matrix is mine, and every firstling among thy cattle, whether ox or sheep, that is male. But the firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou redeem him not... Then shalt thou break his neck. All the firstborn of thy sons shalt thou shalt redeem, and none shall appear before me empty. In other words, if a donkey was going to live, and if it was going to be useful, then a lamb had to die in its place for it to live. It was either death or the death of the lamb. One of the two, either the death of itself or the death of a sacrifice. And that's a reminder of us as believers. The only thing that makes us useful is that the lamb has died in our place. We've been redeemed, not with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. The only reason I'm even here is because of the blood of the lamb. We talked about the substitute of a donkey, and then we talked about the selection of a donkey. Uh, It's interesting because, and this again goes into talking about mules, because we find this to be the case here in our passage before us. But three different times donkeys were ridden into Jerusalem by various kings. King David rode a donkey into Jerusalem. Uh, King Solomon rode a donkey into Jerusalem. And of course, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords rode a donkey into Jerusalem immediately before the crucifixion. Uh, They could have ridden great Clydesdales. They could have ridden uh, Tennessee walking horses. I guess they could have. I guess God could have made it happen. Amen. But they chose to ride a donkey. And this was not uncommon for kings to ride donkeys or mules during peacetime. And it was a symbol, it was a symbol of, of domination 
It was a symbol of pro, uh, of prominence and dominance. It was a symbol that they were in control and on the throne, and the throne was secure for them to ride a donkey. If the kingdom was in upheaval, they traditionally would have ridden a horse because they could have gone to battle at any moment. But when they were riding a donkey, that was a way to telegraph to everybody, hey, my throne is secure. Peacetime is here to stay. I'm not concerned about someone challenging my rule. And we just simply made this note that a donkey is the chosen steed, the chosen ride of kings. Boy, that encourages me. I'll tell you, if I was God, I'd pick someone a lot better than me to do what... I'm doing in my life. I'd probably pick somebody better than you to do what you're doing in your life. We'd probably all of us try to find somebody better than anybody we know to do the work that God has called us to do. But I'm glad the King of Kings will use even a donkey like me or like you to be used for His glory and for His honor. Now, and do remember that, that selection of a donkey, because that's going to bear on our message tonight. So the past few weeks, we've preached through these thoughts. Week number one, we talked about how God called a disturbed donkey to speak. That was the donkey of Balaam. Uh, and God uh, uh, used that donkey uh, to get through to his prophet in a way that no one else could. Uh, we talked about in week two that God had called a dead donkey to sacrifice. That's the donkey from which the jawbone came that Samson used to slay the Philistines. And we talked about the crucified life. How that if we're ever going to be useful to God, we're going to have to learn how to crucify self. And then uh, last week we talked about how God called a disobedient donkey to stray. Or if you just really like alliteration, we might say he called a duo of disobedient donkeys to stray because there was two of them. We talked about the donkeys of Saul's father, Kish, and how that God can use even our mistakes and our missteps in life. We ought not endeavor to go astray, but we can have confidence that when we have gone astray, God can take even that straying and turn it for His good and for His glory. Saul would have never met Samuel and he would have never ascended to the throne if those donkeys hadn't walked off the farm and gotten into a mess and gotten into trouble and somebody had to go after him. Man, I'm glad to know this, that even when I've messed up, and I, and I talk about, I'm talking about looking backwards over my life. Mistakes that I've made, times that God's had to come hunt me down, like that one sheep when the 99 are being left in the fold. Man, I'm glad to know that it wasn't all wasted. It wasn't all for naught. God can use that for His glory and for our good and the good of others in our life. Well, here in 2 Samuel chapter 18, I have just a couple of simple thoughts that I want to give you. But it's not about a donkey. It's, it's about a mule. And we read about this mule that Absalom is riding, uh, that, that Absalom is riding here in 2 Samuel chapter number 18. There's not a lot really that's told us about it. In fact, all we really know from this passage is that Absalom saddles this mule up and sits upon this mule and uses this mule to pursue after his father David. And that this mule carries Absalom underneath the boughs of a thick oak tree and Absalom's head gets caught up in that oak tree. And really the only thing that the Bible says about this this mule uh, is found there in verse number 9. Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode upon a mule. And the mule went under the thick boughs of a great oak, and his head caught hold of the oak, and he was taken up between the heaven and the earth. Now this is the only thing we're told about this mule, that the mule that was under him went away. It might be easy to overlook this passage. It might be easy to overlook this mule. In fact, I would, I would purport to you tonight, and I'd suggest to you that this mule is probably the most obscure of any character in this chapter. 
when you read through, it's hard to not notice David in exile being forced to march an army against his own son and against his own throne and his own kingdom. It's hard to not notice uh, Absalom himself, the usurper, the insurrectionist that has wrestled the throne away from David, his father, and has uh, launched a military campaign. He's hunting his father down like a like quarry in the field. It's hard to not notice Joab, the carnal and underhanded general uh, that is the very one at whose hands Absalom's death is commanded. It's hard to not notice this young man that finds Absalom hanging in this tree. And, and, and it's hard to not laud his honor that he wanted to do what the king wanted him to do. And he didn't want to go against the king's word. And he respected the king's power. Even though the king had been deposed from his throne, he still respected his power and honored him. But I'd suggest to you tonight that this story would have been entirely different had it not been for this mule. And can I say this to you tonight? This mule didn't do anything except what a mule does. He wore a saddle, he carried a rider, and he walked a path. And you know, it's a testimony to me about the power of dependability. Let me just say it this way. I believe we'll title this fourth message this, that in in 2 Samuel 18, God called a dependable donkey, insert parentheses mule, (laughs) a dependable donkey or mule to saddle. This donkey did not do anything spectacular. And yet what this donkey did, because it was dependable, it was consistent, it was faithful, it was trustworthy, made all the difference, not only in this chapter, not only in this book of the Bible, but in the entire history of the nation of Israel. And I say we could go a little further and say this, that much of the the imagery of, of, of the Old Testament, you know, Solomon would later on go on to be a fit representative of the Lord in His millennial glory. And, and much of the typology of the Old Testament would, would rest and hinge upon that succession uh, from David to Solomon in the throne. None of that could have happened if this mule hadn't done what a mule does. And I want to use it to just emphasize this thought to you tonight. We may not be much, but if we'll just keep being consistent, if we'll keep being dependable, if we'll keep doing what God has called us to do, God can do great things in our life as well. You know, I found this to be true as a pastor. And I'm not into my message. I'm going to say a few words before we close and I'll preach a message. But let me say this as a pastor. I found this. Dependability is the most necessary quality for any servant of God. I've known people that were awesome occasionally and you couldn't do hardly anything in their life. I've known people that were pretty ordinary, but they were consistent and seen God use them to great effect. I'd rather be something non-spectacular, but be consistent than be something amazing, but be sporadic. For God can only use people that are consistent. It doesn't matter the talents you have if you're not consistent. Doesn't matter the abilities that you have if you're not consistent. Doesn't matter the resources that you command if you're not consistent. Doesn't matter the power you wield if you're not consistent. God can only use folks that have mastered this thing of consistency. Well, I want you to notice a few thoughts tonight and then we'll close. Let me say a word first off about the context of this mule. This is a very, very 
a precarious time in the history of the nation of Israel. In fact, as we already noted, it may have in some ways been what we would call a crisis in their history. Their rightful king, their regal king, their righteous king David has been ran, has been expelled from the throne of Israel. And this wicked usurper, his very own son Absalom, is now seated upon the throne. It was, let me say this, a time of political upheaval in the nation of Israel. You see this sort of uh, Machiavellian backstabbing and, and, and jockeying for power taking place all throughout these chapters. It's interesting, later on we find this man Joab, this general, kills his very own cousin, a man by the name of Amasa, because Amasa had been placed in Joab's position whenever uh, Absalom was upon the throne. And Joab felt that Amasa was a threat to his own position, and so he kills Amasa. We find that Joab himself disobeys the king's orders and commands that Absalom the son uh, be, be, be killed and be murdered unceremoniously here as he's caught up in this oak tree. After this takes place, by the way, whenever the news is given to David, David does not rejoice that his enemies have been thrown down. He mourns that his son is dead. Joab goes into David and says, David, you're about to lose this kingdom. We've had a great victory today and you've not appreciated the people that have imperiled their lives. And if you're not careful, they're going to turn on you. They're going to leave. They're going to walk away from you and think that you've counted the usurper Absalom of more value and more honor than them. And you're going to lose your kingdom. The worst, it'll be the worst thing that's happened to you from your birth until now. David sort of swallows his grief and goes out and sits in the gate of the city and receives people and and, and plays the, the role of a dutiful king. But his heart isn't in it and it's apparent to the people. And Then there's all of a sudden a squabble between the tribes and elders of Judah and the rest of the tribes. And in fact, a second insurrection takes place uh, by another man, a Benjamite, that wrestles influence away from David. And they actually, before it's all said and done, they fear this man more than they even feared Absalom. I'm saying this, it was a crazy time to live in Israel. Now, doesn't that remind us a little bit about the world that we're living in today? I tell you this, man, after it's all been said and done, I don't care what your political opinions are about this or that, uh, we walk away saying, boy, what a corrupt, corrupt world we live in. We don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it is amazing the dime on which the, the narrative changes at any given time. And the only thing that is, that, that, that is consistent, the only thing that is consistent in all of it is that people want more power, more influence more ability, more resources. We don't know what anything's going to mean. Uh, we're getting ready. The, in fact, let me serve notice on you right, right here and now. I've already scheduled a revival for election night next year. Amen? So vote early and be in church. Amen? <laughs> you got something better to do. Amen? But uh, we live in a time of political upheaval. Well, we don't know what's going to transpire. And you know, the people of God are having a lot of conversations about what our place is in all that. Some people want to pick up a flag and a standard and run around with it. Some people want to bury their head in the sand and pretend as though Christians have no right to even have a civic voice. You say, preacher, what do you think we ought to do? I think we ought to just keep walking. I think we ought to just keep walking. I think we ought to just keep doing what we've known is right and what we do know is right and what we know will be right tomorrow. And I think we ought to just keep walking. It was a time of great political upheaval. Let me say number two, it was a time of great spiritual upheaval. Make, make no bones about it. This was not just, just military warfare. This was spiritual warfare. 
David was a righteous king. David was the king that God had put upon that throne. And now Absalom, who is a wicked man, who is an evil man, who is a carnal man, is seeking to kick God's king off the throne and put himself on the throne. Sounds a lot like what the devil's trying to do in this present age, doesn't it? And it was a time where Israel had to make a choice about what kind of nation they were going to be, if they were going to be a righteous kingdom, a righteous nation, or if they weren't. It was a time of great spiritual upheaval. It was a time when they were trying to decide whether they are going to walk in righteousness or not. And you know, I think that's the truth in today's modern society. We live in a time of deep spiritual upheaval. We live in a time where even basic fundamental things, plain as the nose on your face from the Word of God, are being questioned by purported Christian leaders, thought leaders, influencers, and, 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 and influential people. We live in a time where we're literally battling for the souls of our, of our church members, the souls of our kids, the souls of our, our family. We live in a time where spiritual warfare is raging everywhere we turn. And let me say that in, in our lives. And I'll just I'll just get a little personal without being personal. I'm talking about people in this room, people that I love, people that you love, going through things, fighting battles, man, trying to trying to fight hell off their kids or off their spouse or off their marriage or off their loved ones. We live in a time of great spiritual upheaval. Very often, it's tempting to quit. It's tempting to stray. It's tempting to change course. What do we need to do? I'll tell you what I think we need to do. I think we just need to keep walking. I think we need to keep, keep doing what we know is right. And trust that if it was right in the light, it's right in the dark. If it was right when things were easy, it's right when things are hard. If it was right when everything was going good, then it's right when the sky's falling. God, God needs some dependable people. Not only that, let me say it was a time of emotional upheaval. It's interesting what takes place here. Uh, there is an argument that transpires between this subordinate of Joab. And there's great... Emotions are running high at this time. I mean, David has just commanded his generals, deal gently with the young man, with Absalom for my sake. Now, stop and think about... I mean, that, that's sort of like this non-engagement... Cl- I mean, how, how are they going to do that? He's an enemy combatant. How are they going to deal gently... With him, part of the reason uh, that we fought endless wars is because this idea of dealing gently with the enemy, and that's exactly what David has commanded his men: go, I don't know, go throw a big net over him, fellas, and capture him, but just try not to hurt him. This came from a place of great uh, affection and great, great fear in David's heart and his mind. He just didn't want to see Absalom hurt. And in fact, the first thing that he says when he finds out that Absalom is dead is he cries out and he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son Absalom, wish it were me and not you. David is a man who's not, in a, we might say it this way, he's not in the right headspace to be ruling over Israel at this moment. He, he's unable to put the interests of God and of Israel at the forefront. Joab is a man that seems to be driven by his flesh and, and really dri- driven by resentment and by anger. He saw Absalom as a threat to his power. And he hates Absalom. And he resents the fact that Absalom is trying to destroy the kingdom of his father. And it's apparent with the callousness with which Joab reproaches David whenever he comes to David. And David is weeping and mourning and grieving over the loss of his son. And Joab looks at him and says, what's the matter with you? You're acting like we lost the war today, but we won the war today. Why was Joab so callous and caustic? Because he hated Absalom. He hated Absalom. 
You've got this argument busting out between Joab and one of his subordinates because the subordinate is saying, I'm not going to kill Absalom. That's not my place. The king commanded us not. And Joab, he just sort of sneers. He sort of spits it through his teeth in verse 14. He says, I may not tarry thus with thee. That's his way of saying, I don't have to argue with you. And he takes three darts in his hand and thrusts them through Absalom's heart. And that doesn't even kill Absalom. He just wanted to inflict pain. It was a time, I guess I'm saying, of great emotional upheaval. When emotions were running high. When people were picking sides. When a lot of anger was floating around the room. Can I say that, and this goes with the political upheaval. I don't know that I've ever seen people as angry as they are today. Angry. People traffic in rage. And people just walk around with the perpetual noise and static of fury all the time. Something to be outraged over. Just all, just got to have something to be angry over all the time. And if we're not careful as God's people, we'll buy into that. And we'll try to sanctify that and make that seem noble that we walk around. Can I remind you that the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God? In a time of great political upheaval, what did this mule do? He just walked on. He just kept walking. And kept, what do we as God's people need to do? We just need to keep walking. Keep walking. Let me say a word not only about the context of this mule, but about the coordinating of this mule. Now this is interesting to me. You may not believe this. I've done a little study about it and I'm convinced in my heart and mind about it. Uh, Absalom, when he ascended the throne in Israel, his strategy was to humiliate his father. And so what Absalom did is he tried to take everything that had belonged to his daddy. In fact, one of the most tragic and, and really, really sort of curdling and, and sickening moments in all of Scripture is when David, or excuse me, when Absalom, under the instruction of Ahithophel, who had been a friend to David, but bared uh, great resentment and bitterness in his heart over the way his granddaughter Bathsheba had been treated by David, uh, that Ahithophel gave counsel to Absalom uh, that if he wanted to humiliate David, the way to do it was to spread a tent on top of the palace and to take the concubine go in and out unto them. In other words, uh, showing his domination and his dominance over his father David. And that's exactly what Absalom does. When, By the way, whenever David uh, gets back, he, he takes those concubines and sort of treats them as widows for the rest of their life and he takes care of them, provides for them, uh, but he, he no longer uh, goes in unto them. Uh, and, and Absalom does it. His, his strategy, let me say it this way, was to take everything that belonged to his daddy and to spoil it and to corrupt it and to commandeer it, and to use it in his reign and his rule to prove that he was a bigger man and a better man and a better king than his daddy was. Now, something interesting happens when David is driven out of Jerusalem. The Bible tells us, and we can go back, we can look, I won't take the time to, but you can go back in the past about four chapters and read the whole ugly story. The Bible says that when David leaves Jerusalem, that his head's uncovered and that he's barefoot. Now, why would that matter? Well, a couple reasons. One, it matters, really, the main reason it matters is it showed humiliation, that he fled the kingdom barefoot. To be barefoot in the Bible was an indication of humiliation. And uh, just as people would shave their heads and put on sackcloth and ashes, being barefooted was a, was, was a, a symbolism, a, 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 an indication that you had been humiliated, that you had been bereft of even your very shoes. But something interesting, that would only be significant if David had been walking. When you go through the story of David's flight, exile from Israel, it's apparent in the early portion of it that he's walking because people will walk up beside him and talk to him and communicate with him and he's got an entourage around him. But 
when he's crossing over Jordan, he meets a man by the name of Zeba. If you know your Bible, you know who Zeba is. Zeba was the servant of Saul. And uh, he became the servant of Mephibosheth. Uh, Zeba is seeking to drive Mephibosheth out of favor with King David. And so he's going to tell King David that Mephibosheth has crossed over and is sided with Absalom because he hopes to uh, get a position in the, in the new administration, the new kingdom, so to speak. And, of course, that's all a lie. Mephibosheth has not betrayed David. Mephibosheth is waiting on David when he returns out of exile. But Ziba has lied about this because his life has been completely in devotion to and servitude to Mephibosheth. One of the things that Ziba does, the Bible says, is he brings two donkeys laden with various things. And whenever David says, what are these? Here's what Ziba says. He said, these are for the king's household to ride upon. Now, we already know that David normally and his sons normally rode upon mules. In fact, earlier in the Bible, we're told that every one of David's sons had mules. And it was traditional in Israel for a king in peacetime to ride upon a donkey or to ride upon a mule. He said, what does all this mean? Well, I would say this. If I'm Absalom, and if I'm pursuing after David, who Hushai, the, the counselor, has already noted is a mighty man and a man of war and, 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 and a cunning uh, military strategist. I would want every advantage I could have. No, I'd, I'd, want, I'd want everybody, I would want every advantage that I could have. And I probably wouldn't ride out of Jerusalem on a mule. I'd probably ride out on the best war horse I could find. In fact, I'd probably ride out on a chariot. But not Absalom, he's riding on a mule. Now, you can believe anything you want about this. But I'll tell you something, I believe he was riding on his daddy's mule. I believe just as he took his daddy's concubine and his daddy's thrones and his daddy's uh, palace and his daddy's crown, I think he took his daddy's mule too. And I think he was riding that mule to telegraph to the rest of Israel that he was secure in his throne, that he wasn't riding a war horse out to battle. He was riding a mule. He didn't expect to have to do any fighting. They were going to snuff out uh, this old king with no problem. You say, well, preacher, what does that have to do with anything? Well, I'd say it has a lot to do with it because, you see, this mule could not be just any mule. In fact, according to our narrative, it just about had to be a specific mule. Consider for a moment that this was a providential mule. Uh, it was a providential mule because it had to be in just the right place for Absalom to take it and to saddle it and ride upon it. Not only did it have to be a providential mule because it had to be in the right place, but now, and I think we can all agree with this, it was a providential mule because it had to be the right height. Not just any mule would have put Absalom at the right height to be grabbed by the boughs of that oak tree to be lifted up off the ground. See, here's what I'm getting at tonight. You may look at your life and say it's just ordinary. It's not significant. You may look at how God's using you and say, well, anybody could do what I could do. But I, I would just propose to you tonight that I believe that you, just like this mule, are providentially placed, providentially crafted, providentially designed to be used of God in a distinct and specific way. And in fact, it's true, any mule could have carried Absalom, but only this mule could have done this job in this way, in this time. I, I think it was a providential mule. I'd say this, it was a powerful mule. The, the hinge of history turned on this mule doing what it did. A tyrant was overthrown. A righteous king was placed back on the throne. Uh, the, the, the history of Israel was forever altered. All because this mule just did what a mule does. It just kept walking. You know, God takes unextraordinary people, people that are insignificant, and turns the hinges of history upon their obedience to Him. 
You can go back throughout and look at just about every place in Scripture. You know what you'll find? You'll find people that we never even preach about that if they hadn't done what they did, things wouldn't have turned out the way that they turned out. And the reality is you and I have no clue how God may be using our life. But here's what it's going to take. It's going to take consistency. If God can't count on us to do the right thing and to do it all the time, then how could He coordinate things in such a way as to use us for His glory? If this mule had all of a sudden, all of a sudden decided to buck Absalom, why things wouldn't have turned out the way that they did. If this mule had all of a sudden decided it wouldn't carry Absalom, Absalom wasn't its rider, wasn't its master. It could have said, I, I didn't, I'm not, that's not my master. I don't recognize him. This isn't right. This isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. But he just did what a mule does. And because he did what a mule does, God was able to coordinate things in such a way that the hinge of history turned upon its obedience. We often think that we have to dream up great plans. God already has great plans. All we have to do is be obedient to Him. We think oftentimes that we have to come up with great acts and great achievements. But the fact is, God already has all the planning, all the coordinating taken care of. All He needs is obedient people that are willing to do what they know is right and obey the Lord for Him to place us and use us for His glory. I see the coordinating of this mule. And then finally, I'm going to say this and I'm, and I'm done. I want us to notice the consistency of this mule. Now, this is sort of what we've been preaching towards the whole message. But notice a couple things that remain consistent about this mule. Number one, its commission remained consistent. Literally, the crown had switched hands. That didn't matter for a mule. A mule is just supposed to do what a mule does. <laughs> Let me tell you something. In this day of upheaval that we live in, I, let me tell you something, there, there, there's no Savior coming out of White House. There's a Savior coming back on a white horse. There's no Savior coming out of a White House. There's no Savior coming out of Congress. Uh, there's no Savior coming out of a political movement. Listen, vote your convictions, vote biblical principles, trust it to God. But I'm just going to ha- go ahead and tell you that if we're waiting on government to show up and fix it all, we missed it. We don't know what may happen. The crown may pass hands several times in the next uh, decade or next couple decades, maybe in the next few months. But our commission remains consistent. See, what did it matter to a mule who was on the throne? His job was the same. Just, just be steady, just be stable, just be obedient, just carry the rider. In the same way, you see, really as believers, I remember a man made a statement to me years ago, and this always stuck with me. We were talking about faithfulness and, and, and consistency and dependability. And he said to me, he said, you know, Brother Toby, a man only makes the decision to go to church one time in his life. And I looked at him funny when he said that. I didn't understand. I'm, I'm slow on the uptake. And I, I said, Brother Mark, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, when you make your mind up that you're going to be in the house of God, unless you're providentially hindered, then you never have to have another conversation with yourself about it. There will be times that you will be providentially hindered. I think we all recognize that. I got a, a text message this morning from uh, from Brother Jim that he was sick and, and everything. And, and he was apologized. I said, man, stay home. I don't need your sickness. Amen. <laughs> I, I, I love you. Praying for you. Keep it in Lenore City. We don't need that here. Amen. You get better and then we'll see you. And if not, we'll just be together in heaven. But uh, don't 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 bring that here and make us sick. Uh, We understand there's times we're all providentially hindered. But what he was getting at was this. When you make your mind up that you're going to be consistent, 
then apart from the times when God has placed you, providentially hindered you from from uh, committing or performing something, then there's never a conversation about it. You just automatically know that you're going to do the right thing. You know, no matter how things change, as believers, our calling, our commission remains consistent. We're to be faithful to the house of God. We're to be faithful to the body of Christ. Faithful to the Word of God. Faithful to the prayer closet. Faithful in the sharing of the gospel. We're to express and, and evidence the life of Christ through us. It doesn't matter. Listen, kingdoms may come and go. Emperors may rise and fall. But as believers, our commission remains consistent. Not only that, I notice that its course remained consistent. This really gets down to the heart of the matter. Uh, Absalom gets caught in this tree and, and the donkey, the mule, he doesn't know that Absalom's caught in the tree. Doesn't really matter to him. So he just keeps walking. He's not being given the command to stop. You see, that's what normally would have happened. That, that mule is trained to keep going until it's been given a physical or verbal command to stop. It didn't matter what had happened. Absalom could have been plucked out of that field by an alien spaceship. It wouldn't have mattered to that mule. All it knew was nobody had told it to haul. Nobody had told it to stop. Nobody had told it to wait. And so, you know what it did? It followed the prior immediate command. I love that. You know, so often, we're sitting around disobeying God's last command, waiting for His next command. We're disobeying what we know we ought to be doing while we're waiting on God to show up and tell us what we ought to be doing. I like whatever or what the Lord said to Peter in John chapter number 21 when he told him that he was going to die an unpleasant death, a death that was not going to be natural. And, and Peter turns around and looks at John and says, well, what about this man? And the Lord says, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. In other words, it don't matter what I do in his life. You've got your marching orders, Peter. Don't matter whether he lives, whether he dies. None of that should matter. All that matters, Peter, is that your course remains consistent. I wrote it down this way. is commission remain consistent. Don't stray from your purpose in life. Not only that, it's course remain consistent. Don't stray from your path in life. You know what's right. and What's right today is going to be right five years from now and five minutes from now and 500 years from now if the Lord tarries. So don't change. Just keep doing what you know is right. We live in a society obsessed with change. We live in a society that feels as though unless change takes place, life does not exist. But that is not the case. Not when we're talking about the living, immutable, infallible, uh, un uncorruptible, uh, inerrant, preserved Word of God and its truth and its command. It'll be right and it'll be alive a hundred, a thousand, a million years from now. Just stay, stay on the right course. Don't stray from your path. And then I, I wrote this down. Don't stray from your pace. From your pace. The Bible does not say the mule slowed down or that it sped up. All it says is that it went away. I would probably say this. I don't think it slowed its gait. I don't think it slowed its pace. I don't think it, it, I don't think it deviated. I don't think it swerved. Uh, the text seems to suggest to me that that, that donkey just, or that mule just kept doing what it would have done if Absalom had stayed on it. Whether Absalom was on it or wasn't, it was going at the same Pace. Let me tell you something. In our Christian life, there's much to be said for pace. There's a, one, a, a lot of us that won't quit the race, but we will slow our pace. We won't just flat out give up on God, 
But we'll dial back our commitment and our devotion to Him and our service of Him. And in a time of great upheaval in our world, in our society, uh, and oftentimes in our life, you say, what do we do, preacher? We just keep on walking. Uh, God called a dependable mule. Make no mistake about it, it was God that put that mule underneath Absalom. It wasn't Absalom. Uh, God called a dependable mule. You know why He called this mule? Because He knew that when Absalom's head was caught up in that oak, that mule was just going to keep walking. And the purposes of God were served because that mule just kept walking. And I wonder how God can use your life and my life if we'll just keep walking, keep doing what we know to be right.